the Gospel of John, chapter 7. If you're visiting with us, we are studying the Gospel of John on Sunday mornings. We come to chapter 7. It's a long chapter. We certainly won't get through it all today. But John chapter 7, begin reading with me in verse number 1. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Jewry, because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brethren therefore said unto him, Depart hence, and go into Judea, that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world. For neither did his brethren believe in him. Then said Jesus unto them, My time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but me it hateth, because I testify of it that the works thereof are evil. Go ye up unto this feast, I go not up yet unto this feast, for my time is not yet full come. When he had said these words unto them, he abode still in Galilee. But when his brethren were gone up, then when he also up unto the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret, then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? And there was much murmuring among the people concerning him. For some said, He is a good man. Others said, Nay, but he deceiveth the people. Albeit no man spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. It is clear from the opening statement that this chapter marks a pivotal point in John's account of the gospel of Christ. We already know that John was very selective in his material when he wrote this gospel and he omitted much of what the other three gospel writers had already told. Most notably, he almost skipped over the entire 18-month period that we call the greater Galilean ministry. We have talked about that. Jesus' home base was in Capernaum in Galilee, and that's where he spent most of his time. And in John's gospel, he tells us the first miracle that happened and then one of the last miracles that happened there, but he left out a hundred others. It was not his intent to tell the Galilean ministry. And the last miracle that John records of this greater Galilean ministry was the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter number 6. We saw how in chapter 6 how that, that miracle inspired the populace to want to make him their king, to force him to be their king. They followed him around the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum where you have this bread of life discourse. And what we found is that while the crowd was enamored with what Jesus did, they were disturbed by what Jesus said. It was always his words that was the dividing point with them. So at the end of the Bread of Life discourse, many of his disciples, many of his followers turned away, went home, and would follow him no more. And it is at this point that Jesus begins to withdraw from the public eye, begins to focus more on private discipleship and training and preparing of his disciples for what lay ahead. In verse number 1, it tells us that after these things, Jesus walked in Galilee. And in that short sentence, John deals with seven months of the Lord's ministry. There are seven months that take place between chapter 6 and chapter number 7. The reason I know that is because chapter 6 and verse 4 mentions the Passover. 
Chapter 7 mentions the Feast of Unleavened Bread. There are seven months between the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And what it tells us that though it was traditional, it was a time for all male Jews to go to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus delayed. He would not go up there yet because he knew that the Jews in Jerusalem wanted to kill him. It was not yet his appointed time. And so he stays in Galilee, but his public ministry is coming to a close. If you were to consult a harmony of the Gospels, you would find that Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell some of the details that takes place in that seven-month period, especially Mark 7, 8, and 9, tells you what happened in that seven-month period. It is during that time that he goes up into Tyre and Sidon and he meets the Syrophoenician woman. It is during that time that he comes back down into Bethsaida and he heals that blind man by touching him twice. The Mount of Transfiguration, it takes place between chapter 6 and chapter number 7. But for the most part, he is out of the public eye. He's not doing miracles. He's not preaching publicly. He's not attracting huge crowds. It is just Jesus and his disciples teaching them and preparing them for the days that are, not, that are ahead. Verse 1 also tells us that he would not walk in Jewry. I'll say something about that word in a minute. Because the Jews sought to kill him. Now that harkens back to something that took place all the way back in chapter 5. In chapter 5, Jesus had come in to Jerusalem and he healed that impotent man at the pool of Bethesda. And then this man walks into the temple and he's carrying his bed. That violates one of the silly rabbinical rules of violating the Sabbath. And it creates a conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders in Jerusalem. Jesus counters with them in that chapter with his strongest claims of deity, his oneness with the Father. They understood that he's making himself one with the Father and he became so angry that they wanted to kill him. And Jesus knows that and so he's cautious about coming back into Jerusalem, not because he's afraid, but because he is wise. Now let me give you a quick word of explanation about verse number one. The Bible says he would not walk in Jewry because the Jews sought to kill him. As I've studied the Gospel of John and different commentators, I've discovered that one of the charges commonly made against the Gospel of John is that it is an anti-Semitic gospel. The word Jews is found some 70 times in the Gospel of John and oftentimes it is in a negative connotation. And because of that, a lot of the liberal commentators say that John was an anti-Semite. He, he was anti-Jew. Now, that's a strange charge considering that John was a Jew himself. But if you hold your finger back and you back up to chapter 5, <clears throat> but look at chapter 5 and verse number 15. The Bible says, The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus which had made him whole. Verse 16, therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him. Verse 18, therefore the Jews sought the more to kill 
him. Now, not every time is the word used in a negative reference. Sometimes it's explaining a Jewish uh, custom or, or a ritual. And so, so not everything is, is, is in that connotation. But when John uses the word Jew in his gospel, oftentimes he's referring particularly to a subset of the Jews, and that's the Jews in Jerusalem, the Jews in Judea, the religious elite, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and elders that were so set against him. And so he's not, um, he's not slandering all Jews because it wasn't all Jews. It was that, that group of Jews that ultimately wanted Jesus to be put to death. So when Jesus, so when the Bible says that he would not walk in Jewry because the Jews sought to kill him, he's referring specifically to Jerusalem, the Jews that are in Judea. So now the year has, has moved on. It is getting late into the fall, and it is time for the annual Feast of Tabernacles. And you have to know something about the Feast of Tabernacles in order to understand what's happening in chapter 7. In Leviticus chapter 23, we'll not turn there, but in Leviticus chapter 23, Moses laid out the Jewish calendar with annual feasts or, or holidays. And in the Jewish calendar, there were seven national holidays that had historical and spiritual significance. Three of those were to be observed specifically in Jerusalem. So three times a year, every Jewish male that was able and their families traveled to Jerusalem to observe these three holidays, Passover, Pentecost, and Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles is a week-long festival that is held in the fall of every year. It is held in what we would call our month, corresponds to our month, October. It is a week-long festival. Sometimes it is called Feast of Booths. Sometimes it is called Feast of Ingatherings. It is always held on the 15th day of the month that corresponds with our month, October. It was always five days after the Day of Atonement. And the Feast of Tabernacles is so called because it commemorates the time when the nation of Israel dwelt in tabernacles or in tents in their wilderness wanderings that 40 year period. And it was their way of remembering how God provided them, how God guided them during that period of history when they dwelt in tabernacles. And it was also to remind them that at that time that God himself dwelt with them in his own tabernacle that had been built. And so that was the reason for the Feast of Tabernacles. As this time went on, this feast began to be associated with harvest because it comes at the end of the fall harvest. And so it is a celebratory time. And the central tradition, the central focus of this was that when the Jews traveled to Jerusalem to celebrate this week-long feast, they would all build a booth or a tabernacle, some kind of little structure outside, and they would camp out, if you please, I guess that would be the term, in those tabernacles, and that's their way of reenacting how they lived, their fathers lived in the wilderness. So they would build these little Booths out of bamboo or, or some kind of other structure. And that would be a temporary thing that they would just kind of camp out during that time. And as you can imagine, over time, there were ceremonies and rituals that were added to help them to celebrate this. In fact, did you know that in Numbers chapter 26, it prescribes that there were 70 bullocks, bulls, that were to be offered during that week. I find this very interesting. Day one of the seven-day feast, they are to offer 13 bullocks. 
Day two, they were to offer 12 bullocks. On day three, ascending sale, 11 bullocks. On day four, 10 bullocks. On day five, nine. On day six, eight. On day seven, seven, until they got to 70 bullocks. It's, it's laid out right there in your Bible, the number is 29. Wouldn't you like to know why 70 bullocks in ascending scale like that? Wouldn't you like to know? I wish I had time to elaborate on that this morning, and I don't have time because I've got to stay in my text, but I, I find that absolutely fascinating. But there are two ceremonies that, that were associated with the Feast of Tabernacles. And the first is that the feast was associated with water. Water. The Middle East had two seasons of rain, had an early and a late. It had early rains, spring rains, and it had fall rains. The, the spring rains comes early and, and it waters the ground, and then you have the hot summer that parches the ground, and then the fall rains, the, the later, the latter rains, you've heard that phrase, then refreshes the ground from the from the hot summer. And so during this feast, the people would have prayers praying for the latter rains. But also during the wilderness wanderings, remember that their water came from a rock. God gave them water from a rock during those 40 years. And so the Jews had a little ceremony that every morning they would have a little procession of priests that would go out to the pool of Siloam and they would gather some water up and they would bring it back in this procession and they would pour that water out as an offering on the altar there. And it was kind of their reenactment of God pouring out water from the rock. And then the Feast of Tabernacles was associated with light. It takes place in the autumn, the autumn equinox. Equinox is when the day and night are exactly the same. And then the night gets longer and the day gets shorter. And then in the spring, it, it, it reverses it. But then remember that in, the, that in the wilderness wanderings that they were guided by a pillar of fire by night. And so what they would do to commemorate that is every night in the temple in the inner court, the priest would light up the inner court of the temple with these giant candelabras and it was their way of reenacting the light that God gave them in the wilderness. But this year something different is going to happen. You see, Jesus comes into the temple and he claims to be the fulfillment of the temple. He claims to be the fulfillment of everything that the Feast of Tabernacles meant. And we'll get into that in the next couple of weeks. And, and on the last day in this chapter, on the last day of the feast, as they're doing this pouring of water ceremony, Jesus stands up in the temple and he says, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. He's saying, I'm the fulfillment of that water. And then in John chapter eight, after he Talk deals with that woman taken in adultery. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. That light, I am the fulfillment of it. So Jesus comes to this scene, the Feast of Tabernacles. What you're going to see in this chapter and in the next, that the entire chapter centers on the hostility and the conflict against Christ. Jesus has been away from Jerusalem, but these religious men have not forgotten Perhaps they've heard reports from Galilee of what Jesus is doing. His popularity is rising. And they determined if he ever came back to their turf, they would have their chance. The determination to have him killed is just as strong as it had been seven months earlier. 
So when Jesus comes to Jerusalem, they are ready and they're waiting for him. And the entire scene focuses on conflict. In our verses, I want you to see three conflicts with me. I want you to see, first of all, that there is family conflict. Look at verse 3. His brethren therefore said unto him, Depart thence, and go into Judea, that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, (coughs) show thyself to the world. For neither did his brethren believe in him. We know that Mary and Joseph were espoused. They were engaged when Mary was conceived of the Holy Ghost with the child Jesus. But after the birth of Jesus, Joseph and Mary got married and they had a number of children after that. John chapter 2 talks about his mother and his brothers. Matthew chapter 13 talks about his mother and then it names four brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and then mentions his sisters. So Jesus had at least four brothers and two sisters. Two of those brothers, James and Judas, will be mentioned later on in the New Testament. They become leaders of the church later on. Judas writes the little epistle that bears his name, the book of Jude. That's the brother of Jesus. So so Jesus had brothers and sisters. Now here's the reason why I mentioned that. I, I know that you know that. But that becomes a problem for the Roman Catholic Church. Because the Roman Catholic Church says that Mary was a perpetual virgin. That even after Joseph and Mary got married, she remained a virgin. That they basically had a celibate marriage. And I wonder if Joseph knew that before he married her. And so they say that Mary was a perpetual virgin. And that somehow elevates Mary to some higher status above all women. However, when you create doctrine, when you just invent doctrine out of thin air, you might want to make sure that you read all of the verses. For example, Matthew 1 and verse 24. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, and knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son and called his name Jesus. Isn't it amazing how the one word, the Bible just shatters a key building block of a false religion? It just takes one word is all that it takes. Well, somebody somewhere sometimes showed the Catholic Church that verse. They showed the theologians that Mary and Joseph had more sons and they had more daughters. And so the Catholic theologian said, well, 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 well then, then, then it must have been Joseph's children by a previous marriage. That's what it was. Or, or they weren't really Jesus' brothers. They were actually his cousins. And it's all nonsense. Mary was not a perpetual virgin. There was no need for her to be. A, and she and Joseph had many children after the birth of Jesus. They're, they're not cousins. They're not Joseph's from a previous marriage. Jesus grew up in a family where he was the elder brother, but he had siblings. Now, Joseph may have died before Jesus entered into public ministry because he's not mentioned. Mary and his brothers and his sisters are all involved in his life. 
And now those brothers come to Jesus and they make a suggestion. And here's their suggestion. The Feast of Tabernacles is a wonderful time for you to go up to Jerusalem and to make yourself known. You're going to have to expand your horizons. You have been hiding out in Galilee long enough. If you are the Messiah, then you need to present yourself to the nation. And you're going to have to go to Jerusalem. And you're going to have to be accepted there. So the Feast of Tabernacles is the time to go get this thing rolling. Now commentators differ as to their motive. Some say that, that they were trying to help him, that, that they were concerned that he was losing followers in Galilee and, and they, they kind of wanted to help make him the Messiah. Uh, he needs to do something to recharge his campaign, so to say. Uh, uh, you've got a following in Galilee and now you need to expand and have a following in, in, in Judea. I actually don't believe any of that. I actually believe that, that, that they're tired of his claims of being the Messiah and that they're basically saying it's time to put up or shut up. The reason why I say that is because verse 5 says, neither did his brethren believe in him. Now listen to me. They had all of the evidence in the world. They were closer to him than anybody else that were living. They knew what kind of life that he lived. They watched him from day one. They knew his miracles and they did not believe in him. Later, after the resurrection, his brothers would believe in him. But for the longest time, those who were closest to him did not believe in him. And can I tell you that even a physical relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ is absolutely worthless as far as eternal life is concerned. Jesus died for their sins as well. And if his mother and if his brothers had not come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, then even they would have died and have gone to hell. They had to believe on him just like everybody else did. But the Bible says they did not believe. And it tells me that you can be so close to Jesus, but so far away. You aren't physically related to him as in flesh and blood, but you're related to people that do know him. And it does absolutely nothing as far as your eternity is concerned. You can be intimately familiar with the things of Jesus and the words of Jesus because of your religion. But have you trusted him as your personal Lord and Savior? You, you would think of all people that those who had known him from his childhood would have been the first to believe him. They have had a front row seat to his life and to his words and to his miracles and his doctrine. But with all of that, they did not believe he's the Messiah. They did not believe he is the son of God. And here's what I wonder. Surely Mary had told them about the virgin birth. Surely she has told them that. But for everything that they see, they have an explanation. They have an answer. They have an objection for that. And I say to you this morning that there is a warning even in the church that you can be so exposed to truth and have your mind saturated with the word of God but never come to the place of faith in Christ. You can have close proximity to Jesus and die and go to hell. You can be raised quoting Bible verses since the, just the day that you were able to talk but that word never settled down into your heart. In fact, I think about how one time Jesus was preaching. And while he was preaching, there was a woman, there was a woman in the crowd that just blurted out. And she said, blessed is the womb that bare thee and the paps that gave thee sick. In other words, boy, God bless your mother. Huh? 
God blessed the woman that gave birth to you and nursed you and weaned you. And Jesus just stopped. And he looked at that woman. And here's what Jesus said. Yay. 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 Rather, blessed are the day that hear the word of God and keep it. The spiritual relationship is more important than the physical relationship. It doesn't matter how close you get to Jesus. Even if you are flesh and blood, you must believe in him. So his brothers come to him and they give some him advice. They're not antagonistic to him. They're just going to try to help him. And here's what they say. They say nobody does things in secret if they want to be known openly. You have spent all of this time, all of this time in Galilee, and here lately you've been withdrawing yourself. Things are going backwards per se. That This is not the way to do it. You, 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 you are going about it the wrong way. If you are who you say you are, then go to Jerusalem and make it known. You can't be hiding out here in Galilee if you want people to know who you are. So get up to Jerusalem at the Feast of Tabernacles when the town is filled with Jews from all over the world. That is your golden opportunity to do some miracle, to do some teaching, and to start a movement. And it could be, it could be that they thought that, that if they could get the Jews in Jerusalem to accept him, then maybe he can become the king. If you can get a following in Jerusalem, then that's the acid test. And here's what's interesting to me. It's interesting to me how many times the people in the Gospels advised Jesus and they were wrong. Huh? If you want to be known, this is the way to do it. I think, I think, about, I think about when he's on the cross. Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest up in three days. If thou be the son of God, come down from the cross. That was their advice. I, 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 I think about Satan. If thou be the son of God, command these stones be turned to bread. If thou be the son of God, cast thyself down. But oh, if we could accept that Jesus doesn't need your suggestions. He doesn't need your advice, doesn't need your ideas. He does not operate by carnal methods. How blessed to trust the wisdom of God that he knows what is best. His timing is best. His ways is best. His ways are perfect. The family conflict. But then I want you to see secondly that there is a worldly conflict. Look at verse number six. Jesus said unto them, my time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but me it hateth, because I testify of it that the works thereof are evil. Now it's very clear that Jesus is on a divine timetable. And I believe the time that he is referring to is the time when he will make his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Well, they will say, Hosanna, Hosanna. They will temporarily accept him as the Messiah and then the next day reject him as the king of the Jews. Right. And that's going to take place at Passover, which is another six months away. We are six months from the crucifixion. But everything that Jesus did was in the fullness of time. He is on mission and he is on time. What his brothers have suggested is the wrong way and it's the wrong time. Wrong time. So he says in verse number eight, he says, Go ye up unto this feast. I go not up yet unto this feast, for my time is not yet full come. 
When he had said these words unto them, he abode still in Galilee. But when his brethren were gone up, then went he also up unto the feast, and not openly, but as it were, a secret. By the way, can I just show this to you real quickly, if I could? Um, uh, go, go back to verse number 8. He says, go ye up to this feast. I go not up yet unto this feast, for my time is not yet full come. Check the modern translations. Most of the modern translations, for some reason, leave out the word yet. I go not up unto this feast. They take that one little word out. Well, if you take that word out, then he's being disingenuous. He's being dishonest. He's not, it's not like he said, I'm going, not going to the feast, and he's tricking them, not telling them all the truth. And I, no, 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 no. He says, I'm not going yet. I'm on a divine timetable, and yet is not my time. And over and over and over, you, you'll see, come, come back to John 2 real quick. John, are you still with me this morning? Look at John chapter 2. And, and look at verse number 4. Jesus said to her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. Come back to John 8. John chapter 8 and verse number 20. These words spake Jesus in the treasury as he taught in the temple. No man laid hands on him, for his hour was not yet come. Back to chapter 7 and verse 30. Then they sought to take him, but no man laid hands on him, because his hour was not yet come. Over and over and over, his hour has not yet come. But come to John 12. Come, 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 come. John Or John 13. Look at John 13. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that the hour was Come, look at chapter 17, John 17, verse 1. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. He's working on a divine timetable. And I think that sometimes that we want God to work on our timetable, but God has his own timing. God knows what's best and he knows when is best. His way is perfect and his timing is perfect. So, so come back to chapter 7, come back to it. I got to hurry. Look at verse 7. He says, the world cannot hate you. He's talking to his brethren that don't believe on him. But me it hateth. Because I testify of it that the works thereof are evil. You know I cannot find any place in the gospels where anybody ever said a negative word about Mary. I cannot find anywhere in the gospels where anybody slandered or criticized his brothers. They did pick up stones to stone Simon or Judas or, or none of them. They had no problem with his brothers and with his sisters. And here's what Jesus says. He says, the world does not hate you. You can go up to Jerusalem and it won't be a problem at all because nobody there wants to kill you. It's me that they hate. That's what he says. It's me that they hate. James, James, one of the brothers of Jesus, would become one of the leaders of the church. You'll see him in Acts chapter 15 at the Jerusalem Council. James has taken a lead there, not, not the apostle James, James, the brother of Jesus. And, and, and they were fine. They were fine with James until James became a follower of Christ after the resurrection. He believed on Christ and everybody was fine with him until he became a follower of Christ. And then they started having problems with him. They say that they called James, the brother of Jesus, they called him James the Just because of such a holy man. And, and they, they said that James prayed for the forgiveness of Israel so much that he had knees like a camel. They were rough. They called him camel knees. That was James, the brother of Jesus. And, and James was a 
powerful, powerful preacher. And even some of the leaders in Jerusalem were getting saved from his preaching. And so the Pharisees, they were upset about that. And so they wanted James to recant. They wanted to renounce Christ. And the story says that they took James up onto the high pinnacle of the temple. And then there was a great crowd gathered on the ground below. And they hollered up to James, James, tell us what you really think of Jesus. Tell us the truth about Jesus wanting him to recant. And James took the opportunity and began to preach. And they got angry. And so the Pharisees came up, the story says, they came up and they pushed him off the pinnacle of the temple to the ground below and it didn't kill him. So they took up stones and they took clubs and they began to beat him and they began to beat him to death. They were fine with him until they believed on Jesus. Simon, Simon, they say that Simon was crucified, that Jew was either crucified or sawed in half. And Jesus says, the world's fine with you, but me it hates. And do you know what our problem is today? We don't want the world to hate us. We have a love affair with a world that does not love us back. And isn't it amazing that so many Christians think that the world is their friend. And they want to be buddy-buddy with the world. How comfortable we feel in this world. And this world is just a big brotherhood of sinfulness is what it is. Sinners love the sinfulness of other sinners. They do things together. They drink and they carouse together. And they, 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 they live in immorality. And they lie and they cheat and they steal. And the more that you do it, the better that they will like you. The more wicked you are, then the better that they will think you are great. The world loves a sinner because it makes them comfortable in their own sin. And the world doesn't love you. If you identify with Jesus Christ, don't be surprised that the world is going to hate you. That's what Jesus said. In fact, Jesus said to John 15, be happy. You're hated. That's what he says. John 15 and verse number 15, he said of the world, hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. You want to follow Harry Krishna and Joseph Smith and Buddha and Muhammad and Gandhi, the world will just think that you are wonderful. But when you identify with that one single person that they hate with all of their heart. Jesus is not here, but if it were here, they'd treat him the same way they did the first time that he came. But since he's not here, you're his representative, and they're going to do to you what they wish they could do to him. And hate is not something that you just sit on. Hate eventually has to be acted out. You have to unleash it upon somebody. You have to do something. You have to say something. So don't take it personal when the world hates you. Embrace it in the words of Jesus. Be happy that the world hates you. Amen. There's pastors all over the world right now that are sitting in prison because they love Jesus. There are believers all over the world that have been cut off from their family because they believe in Jesus. We don't feel that. I know that. But Jesus said, they're fine with you. It's me that they hate. John 15 says, Jesus said, they hated me without a cause. Think about that. God took away every reason for man to hate Jesus. And men still continue to hate him. They do it for no other reason because of their sin. In fact, in verse 7, he says, Me it hateth because I testify of it that the works thereof are evil. I'm going to tell you something. If Jesus was here today in the flesh, the liberal church would not recognize him because he's not the Jesus that they think that he is. 
I'm telling you, if Jesus came back in the flesh and just walked around, he would not be the lovey-dovey Jesus that has a good word for the sodomites and brag on the fornicators and excuse your drinking. I'm going to tell you what he'd do. He'd tell you that you're full of the devil and that your sin is straight out of hell and you're going to hell with a heart full of sin. If Jesus were here in person, he'd be a different Jesus than everybody makes him out to be because he's not the soft soap, lovey-dovey, ooey-gooey Jesus that modernism thinks that he is. That's not Jesus. He said, they hate me because I tell them that the works thereof are evil. It's a worldly conflict. But then I want you to notice quickly, there's a religious conflict. Look at verse number 10. But when his brethren were gone up, then went he also up unto the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. And the Jews sought him at the feast and said, where is he? And there was much murmuring among the people concerning him. For some said, he's a good man. Others said, nay, but he deceived the people. Howbeit no man spake openly of him for fear of the Jews. So before Eric Jesus ever got to Jerusalem, he's already the talk of the town. There's anticipation that he's probably going to be here this week. And so people are talking. But though everybody's talking, they're talking in hushed tones. Because the Pharisees are looking for him. It could be that the Pharisees have forbidden people to talk about him. Kind of like the religious police. And so nobody has enough courage to actually come out and say, I actually believe that he is the Messiah. So no man spoke openly of him. And here's what you're going to find in this chapter and in the next. And I'm going to close. What you're going to find in this chapter is that the hatred and opposition against Jesus was led by religion. It is not the Romans. It is not the Samaritans. It is not some rogue band of criminals that hated Jesus. It was not the thief and the murderer that gave him all the trouble. It was the religious people. Their religion did not draw them closer to him. Their religion drove them farther away from him. Can I tell you that any religion that does not draw you to Jesus is a damnable religion. It is a damnable religion. There's a lot of religions that have good things about them. Moral teachings and high values and all of that. But the test of every religion is what does it say about Jesus Christ? And the rulers of Judaism would not accept Christ for who he is. Therefore, Judaism was dead as far as God was concerned. And if your religion, and you've got it, but if your religion does not draw you into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, your religion is worthless. The men who are looking for Jesus to kill him are the moral, upright citizens of the day. They are respectable men. The men who are looking for Jesus to kill him are men who live clean lives. They keep the law, they tithe, they give to the poor, and they do all of those things in the name of religion, but they are the enemies of Jesus Christ. And I say to you this morning that you join every church in Santa Rosa County. Get baptized every month if you want to. Give your money away to the poor and do it all in the name of religion. And those good works in that religion will send you to hell. And if you are not his friend, 
you are his enemy. If you are not in relationship, you are in conflict. People all over this town, nice people, good people, church going, respectable people, but a religion. I don't care if it's Buddhism or Baptist, a religion that does not point you to Jesus Christ is a religion that is in conflict with Christ. Our heads of our eyes are closed. As Anna comes, do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? I think the message the church needs to hear is that close proximity to Jesus does not guarantee that you know him. You can be as close to him as his brothers in the flesh but have not trusted him. Trusting a prayer, a profession of faith, Somebody told you that you were saved. So close. So far away. Are you a secret disciple of Jesus? Would speak of him but will not for fear of the people. In love with a world that hates Jesus Christ. I say cast your lot with him. I love him. I follow him. And I want the world to know that. He's more than just a good man. He's my Lord. He's my Savior. And I love him. I love him.